Hi, it's Rick Jones, captain of Fish Bay Marketing, back for another edition of From the Bridge. We have a great show today focused on mentors, and I am so pleased to have one of my mentors, the great Jim Host, as my guest angler today. We'll also step back up on that soapbox and have yet another On the Road with Rick road trip segment. So let's cast off and start the show. I have been so blessed my entire life to have so many mentors that have helped me along the way. Family members, teachers, coaches, ministers, and business leaders that have added value to me along the road of life. There are really too many mentors for me to name individually today, but we're going to focus on a few key people. My first and best mentor was my dad. Uh, We were a lot alike and uh, enjoyed doing so many things together. Uh, My father was a federal investigator. He had been both the city of Atlanta police officer and a military policeman in Korea. You know, he got drafted to go to Korea and they, uh, they put him in a Native American unit, all uh, Oklahoma uh, Indians, uh, Native Americans. And he, he asked why. He said, they drink a lot, and you don't drink, and <laughs> you'll keep them out of the brig. And uh, But my dad said it was so good for him to learn about new cultures. Uh, it gave him exposure to a society and to a lifestyle that he had never seen before, and it made him much more tolerant and made him a much more effective investigator for the rest of his career. You know, when you grow up in a house with a cop, it's pretty much impossible to get away with anything, (laughs) Uh, anything bad in my house. uh, My dad seemed to know things I was thinking about doing before I even thought about doing them. Uh, My dad was also a Baptist deacon, a golfer, a fisherman, and a woodworking craftsman, not necessarily in that order. One of our favorite hobbies together was we would go metal detecting. We would go look for coins and relics and a variety of things. I was a nine-year-old, and my dad traveled a lot with the government. And uh, he came home and brought a book called uh, The Treasure Hunter's Manual. And I remember as a nine-year-old reading that thing cover to cover, thinking about I could find buried treasure out there. And I had a paper out, and I saved my money, and I bought my first metal detector, a little white electronic metal detector. And Started finding coins in the yard in the neighborhood. My dad liked it, and he went out and bought a metal detector, too. And then uh, over the years, we did a lot of those things together. We actually, uh, there's a place in Georgia called Callaway Gardens that was built by the Callaway family of Callaway Mills family. And Callaway Gardens has this gigantic um, man-made lake with a sandy beach. It's been there, you know, you know, 70, 80 years now, I guess. And... Uh, one cold Super Bowl Sunday, my dad said, everybody will be watching the Super Bowl. Nobody will be watching the beach. We snuck down to Callaway Gardens with our metal detectors and got on that beach. And <clears throat> in the wintertime, a lot of the beach that would be underwater during the regular summer had had uh, gone you know, back. And, and, and so we were actually in a part of the lake that usually was covered with water. We found over 5,000 coins and rings that one day. It it was unbelievable how much stuff we found. So we had a lot of fun together. Um, You know, my dad's philosophy was if it's worth doing, it's worth doing both right and doing well. Uh, I learned about hard work, priorities, uh, honoring your word, and, and, and maybe most importantly, how to love my wife from my dad. 
because he loved my mom dearly, and he was a great role model for how to be a, a husband and then a, far, a father. He was a terrific role model. He died uh, much too young, and I still miss him every day, but he, he clearly was a, a great mentor for me. Two other mentors that have showed me the way are Dr. Homer Rice and, and Bob Cohn. Dr. Rice, or better yet, Coach Rice, because uh, Homer Rice was a great football coach, a great high school coach, college coach, and was even the coach of the Cincinnati Bengals in the National Football League. Uh, Dr. Rice is simply one of the most impressive human beings I've ever had the pleasure to know. I, I worked for Homer at Georgia Tech early in my career, and he had written a book at that time called Leadership Through Athletics, which made such an impact on me. Uh, I've never met anybody more organized than Dr. Rice, and he taught me this system of planning my life that I still use to this day, you know, now 35-plus years later. So every night when I review my next day's list, which I do every day, I think about Homer and his impact on my life. Uh, I went to work for Bob Cohn in 1985, and I've been in the agency business ever since. I left college athletics at the time, went to work for Cohn & Wolf, his agency, and um, it you know, obviously changed the trajectory of my career. Uh, Bob Cohn and his partner, Norman Wolf, built an amazing PR firm that still exists today. Uh, and Bob was, without question, the most creative guy I'd ever knew, and his creativity was absolutely contagious. He taught me that big ideas rule the day, and I've tried to emulate his creativity my entire career. We are hoping to do a Conan Wolf reunion sometime this summer if this pandemic will end, and I look forward to, to seeing him uh, and some of my colleagues from those days, uh, hopefully later this summer. And it goes without saying that my guest angler today, Jim Host, has been one of the most important mentors in my life. Jim is simply the hardest working person I've ever known. Uh, but more than that, he's a true statesman. Uh, I've told this story about him to many people, but if you're familiar with the movie It's a Wonderful Life, uh, it's a great story of, of, of a banker named George Bailey who has his whole life set up ahead of himself, but real life just keeps getting in the way. <laughs> and he makes compromises in his life to, to stay in the little town of Bedford Falls. Um, well, Jim Host is the George Bailey of our, of our industry. He's a guy that put everybody ahead of himself. Uh, he always looked at the big picture and not the small picture of what it was going to do for him and is truly a great statesman. And I think you're going to enjoy him being with us today as our guest angler. So here's three questions for those listening out there today. Firstly, who are your mentors? Who's helped you and guided you along the way? You should make a point to reach out to them if they're still alive and let them know how much they have meant to you. The second question, though, is who's guiding you now? I am fortunate to have a number of people who help me today to bounce ideas off, to make me think differently, uh, to coach me up. These are people like Tom Pierce and Rusty Reed and my good friend T-Boy Bear down in uh, Louisiana, Robbie Ferry here in Charleston, Lisa Murray, who uh, worked with me for a number of years and adds value to me every time we talk, and my buddy Gordon Whitener, just to name a few. I'm also fortunate to have the very best business partner in Ron Cook, who helps me in more ways than I can describe. And last but certainly not least, my wife of 35 years, Charlotte, is absolutely my best mentor. Nobody makes me better than she does. 
She says, it's really easy to make me better since there's so many faults to work with. <laughs> my, my, uh, my mom used to describe my dad as a nagging wife's dream. Um, I think sometimes maybe Charlotte feels the same way about me. But the third question is the most important question today, and that's who are you mentoring? Because life is a two-way street. If you're not adding value to other people, then you're simply not living. So find someone today to mentor to, because both of you will be rewarded. Now let's climb back up onto that soapbox. Uh, When I lived in England, I discovered a place in Hyde Park called Hyde Park Corner. And it's a place that's been there literally for centuries where... uh, Anyone at any time on any day can stand on a podium and talk out loud about anything they wish to talk about. And usually it's about politics. (laughs) So I want to talk a little bit about politics today. And really what I want to focus on is I want to talk about statesmen or what I consider to be the lack of statesmen today. When I was a kid and a young man, I knew about plenty of people who I considered to be statesmen. And yes, you know, unfortunately, in that era, most of them were men. People from both sides of the political aisle, men like Everett Dirksen or Tip O'Neill, the three Kennedy boys, George Herbert Walker Bush, Ronald Reagan, men like Andrew Young and Jimmy Carter. These were giants of politics, but they were willing to work with others for the common good. The last true statesman I can remember was our former mayor of Charleston, Joe Riley. He served here with 10 four-year terms, folks. That's 40 years of being the mayor of Charleston. Joe Riley was a Democrat and largely a Republican town. He inherited uh, his job at the time that we closed our Navy base. We were a a Navy town. We were a military town. And, and, and when the base closed, people wondered what was going to happen to Charleston. And yet he had a vision for remaking Charleston as a great tourist destination uh, and had the vision to build the Charleston Place Hotel in an area that was really full of crack houses and really changed the tra- trajectory of our city. He also was the mayor during the tragedy of uh, Hurricane Hugo. We had a mu- massive hurricane hit downtown Charleston that took literally a decade to rebuild. And finally, he was the mayor when we had the murder of the nine innocent people at the Mother Emanuel Church. He handled all this with grace, dignity, and class. Maybe it's my age showing now, but I'm longing for the era again where compromise is not a bad thing. You know, no one ever gets 100% of what they want 100% of the time. Again, in this time of crisis here and around the world, I ask you, Just where are the statesmen? And that's the soapbox. My very special guest today is my mentor and friend, Jim Host. Jim is considered the father of collegiate sports marketing and is the author of a brand new book about his life and career, Changing the Game. Jim, welcome to From the Bridge. Glad to be with you, Rick. Well, let's. I want to talk a little bit about your career. One of the one of the sad things about this COVID pandemic, I saw this morning that we've already lost over a hundred sports 
at select schools. I, I think it's a trickle that's going to become a stream that may become a flood here. It's absolutely heartbreaking for those student athletes. Uh, I, I know what your baseball scholarship to the University of Kentucky meant to you. T- talk about how that was so important to you and how that got you a great start. Well, my mother comes from a family of 15 and my dad from a family of five. I've got 61 first cousins. And I'm the first person on either side of my family ever to go to college. Uh, the most money my dad ever made in his life was $8,000 a year working in a tannery. And uh, we always had enough to eat because we had a garden and vegetables and what have you. And I worked two jobs uh, in high school. And uh, uh, so uh, when I got a baseball scholarship, full baseball scholarship at Kentucky, that was everything. Uh and uh, I, I see schools like Bowling Green dropping baseball uh, when they played in the NCAA finals of regional tournament just three years ago. That breaks my heart. And uh, uh, something, uh, we just can't allow that to happen. I don't know what we do about it, but uh, it's, it's tragic. Well, it's interesting. You, you had a career in three areas that are all three are, I think, are under siege right now with this virus. You had, you had a career in tourism with the National Tour Association, and obviously, the tourism industry has just been devastated. You had an amazing career and continue to work in the collegiate sports space, and as we mentioned, the the, the issues they're doing. And you had a career in politics, and so right now, all three seem to be uh, under siege. Let's talk about what you think needs to be done to get us back on track. Well, first of all, uh, it all tends around leadership. And uh, I think that, uh, uh, I think what you're going to see, this is just a prediction. I don't have any basis of fact uh, to back this up, but I think that the five, our five conferences uh, are about to go out on their own. And, uh, and if that happens, uh, then I think you're going to find more fallout because of, uh, uh, the linkage financially that a lot of the power five conference schools are to mid majors and, uh, uh, leadership has to emulate at the top of the NCAA. And, uh, I don't see a lot of that happening right now. And, uh, I think that the five power five commissioners, uh, have begun to, exert themselves. And, uh, I think it's going to be interesting what happens. One of the things that uh, I think has got to happen is, uh, uh, more clear definition of, uh, the, uh, issue of licensing and, the, uh, and the fear that all the schools have of what this is going to do in terms of recruiting. Uh, and again, it all comes back to leadership, uh, just like everything else. Somebody has to step forward, take the reins and, and put some strong information out to all the schools. I guarantee if Walter Byers were running the NCA, this wouldn't be the case. No, I, I, you know, I try to, uh, on, on my podcast, I try to not be a fossil and constantly look back, but we're at a time right now that I, I am, uh, I'm so concerned about the lack of leadership. Um, uh, you know, you, you, you've been such a great mentor to me and such a great mentor to others, but I think back of the Roy Kramers and the CM Newtons and the Vince Dooley's and the Walter Byers uh, and the Jim Host for that matter, 
at a time we need more wisdom than ever. There doesn't seem to be a lot of wisdom out there. And I worry that it's going to be one of these every man for himself, every institution for themselves to the point we're going to kill this thing that we really love, which is college athletics. Couldn't agree with you more, Rick. And I think one of the things that uh, uh, should be done is to have um, all of those uh, – uh, people who are involved in college athletics uh, all come together. It used to be that uh, when you had an NCAA convention, you would shoot a cannon down the hall and never hit a president. Today, you could shoot a cannon down the hall at an NCAA convention and never hit an AD. And uh, and I think there needs to be uh, an understanding among the college presidents uh, of the importance. I think they all understand the importance of college athletics. But I don't think what they I think what they don't understand is the value of, of college athletics and all sports uh, uh, as it relates to fundraising at these institutions, at the ability of these institutions to do an even better job job academically. Uh, uh, there's just so many things that could be done with the right kind of leadership. Well, I also know that it seems like every leader that I know today, uh, college athletics had a had a big role in their lives. Um, you know, I'm even seeing a new generation of female leadership that Title IX really created because they learned to play a team sport. They had opportunities, um, and and I, I think the value of having played in that environment led you to you know, to greater things post college uh, that that you don't get in a normal academic. A curriculum, uh, and I think that that's so valuable. And clearly, you know, playing at Kentucky, the contacts that you made uh, led you to to the career that you had. I, I got a factoid for you, um, and uh, that is this: that before Title IX, there was not a single Fortune 500 CEO who was female. Think about that. And today. Uh, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's a huge percentage of uh, CEOs that run Fortune 500 companies are uh, women. And the vast majority of those women, in fact, I think all of them played competitive athletics in college or in high school. And, uh, and a lot of them take their uh, value of competition and the ability of being able to run a Fortune 500 company from the fact they played competitive college athletics. So just think where we would be without that. No, there's no question. And, I, and I've always tried to – I kind of tried to emulate where you did. I, I, I would recruit a personality profile. I, I liked people that had played a team sport because you realized that sometimes you had to do things you didn't necessarily want to do because it was what was good for the team and not good for yourself individually. Um, and, and you built an agency. I, I, I've said this before. Uh, you know, there are only three – trees in sports marketing there's the the mark mccormick img tree there was the pro serve advantage donald dell david falk front craig hill tree and there's the jim host host communications tree i would put the people that worked with you and for you and i'd go to war with that group any day of the week talk talk about how gratifying that had to be well uh first of all uh it was it wasn't uh my company was our company. You remember all of that. And, uh, 
And I, I didn't ask anybody to do anything that I wouldn't do. I didn't ask anybody to work any harder than I would do. I didn't ask people to do things uh, in terms of, uh, of being out front. But there was, there were, I had two rules of business. One is you do not misrepresent or lie about anything. If you did, you didn't get a second chance, you were fired. Number two, you couldn't steal five cents from the expense account. If you did, you were fired. Uh, that's integrity and character. And you can build great companies with integrity and character. And that was, that was what we tried to do. And you, and you also know this, that some people couldn't operate out of the, uh, under the intensity of that type of focus uh, because we demanded, we demanded uh, integrity. We demanded accountability. And we demanded the ability of people that worked, uh, that we worked for, that we would treat them like we'd want to be treated. And uh, I, I tell you what, I'll take five people with great attitudes and beat five Michael Jordans every day of the week, athletic and in business. Michael Jordans being having great ability, but not great attitudes. And uh, uh, they're and it's and it, I'm just so gratified, so gratified as I look back. I'm 82 now, and as I look back on my life and and what we were able to do, I'm so gratified with the number of people that continue to pop up, uh, that continue to talk to me. That can, and, and I'm as you well know, I I have a, a standing situation, which is that anybody, any young person, any young person that makes difference who they are. That wants to meet with me, even today, I will meet with them. Uh, I'll give them a half hour or longer if they need it. And uh, we talk about uh, what they do with their lives and, and how they progress ahead with their lives. So I, I love every minute of every day and uh, I'm challenged by every minute of every day. And I think what's going on in the country right now is an exhibit of what happens when you've, you've got to have, you've got to have great leadership in these cities and in these counties and in these states and so on. And if you don't have great leadership, uh, other things happen. Well, I think um, you, we both agree that, that, you know, you have to have personal accountability and responsibility. You know, there's too many people want to blame. They want to play the blame game. It's somebody else's fault. Um, and, and yet, you know, God gave us all gifts that we're able to maximize. I, I remember this, the sense of pride that you instilled in all of us. I, I still, Jim, have my first Final Four jacket, host communications jacket, hanging in my closet. And, and I remember the sense of pride in wearing that. Um, there was just something about being part of that that band of brothers that, that it said something about your value system, but it said something about our value system for wanting to be a part of that. Um, you know, you've done so many fascinating and impactful things in your career. What made you finally want to write the book? And, and folks, the book, Changing the Game, is unbelievable. It is so good. There's so many lessons in there. I mean, it's just full of wisdom. What, 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 made, you, what made you finally get around to doing it? My uh, first mentor in life uh, was a guy by the name of Len Press. Len Press uh, was my the head of the radio TV department at the University of Kentucky. When I came to Kentucky, he actually wasn't the head of it yet. He was a professor. But uh, uh, Cam Henderson Haggard, Cam, that's, uh, that was uh, Cam Henderson's daughter, who was a great coach at Marshall at one time. 
uh, was the head of the department at UK. She left after a year, and he became the head of it. He called, and then we'll forget it like it was yesterday. He called me in, and he said, uh, uh, I think you've got a chance uh, with your want to, and, and uh, as he called it, your want to and your attitude. Uh, and he sat and looked at me, and he was from Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, he he said, uh, I'm, I want you to start working with Ernie Coyle, who's doing a play-by-play for WBKY, which was a student radio station, and I want you to learn. You, that's what you determined that you want to do, and I want you to have the opportunity to do it. So I would go in and, and uh, get him to critique my tapes and to critique what I was doing, and he took a huge amount of time. Well, fast forward, he became the head of Kentucky Educational Television, and I helped him when I became the youngest cabinet head of, uh, in the history of state government when I was 29. Uh, and uh, he, he called me out of the blue, and he said, uh, I've got a real problem, uh, Jim. I said, what is it? He said, I don't know anybody in this administration. We've got a bunch of buildings that, uh, that have been built for Kentucky Educational Television, but we have no operating funds to operate them with. Because, quite frankly, we weren't counting on this guy winning as a governor in the governor's race. And he said, uh, you're, you're the only person all of us, any of us know there. I said, well, come see me. So we went in to see the governor. Uh, and he said, we don't have an appointment. I said, well, we don't need one. We're going to go in the side door. And so we went in the side door. And he, he, I said, this is Len Press, Kentucky Education Television. He said, uh, I hate education television that's i'm opposed to it i'm opposed to it because it's a violation of commercial rights and i said governor you're wrong and and said let len get let's take five minutes at the end of five minutes len had convinced him with three basic points and uh and the, and the governor said how much money do you need and len said five million and he said i'll go to work on it and he gave him 4.4 million in the next budget which was being done within the next couple of months. And that's how Kentucky Education Television started. So I was very close to Lynn all those years. His wife, uh, Lil, was the uh, traffic manager at WBLK, where I started commercially to work with. And so they, so Pat and I would have Lynn and Lil to dinner at least once a year. Uh, and Lynn just died at 98 years old. And Lil just died at 96 years old within the last two months. And so Lynn and Lil would come to dinner with Alan, Martha Allen Smith, who was a famous journalist for the state. And uh, we would have for dinner. And one night, uh, uh, they both sat and said, Jim, you have to do a book. If you don't do a book, it will be a crime because you've got so many stories and things that can help young people. So that's how it started. And, uh, and from there, uh, Terry Birdwhistle, who was the dean of the School of Libraries, whose wife, uh, Janice, worked with our company for a long period of time, uh, did 22 two-hour audio history sessions because he runs the audio history department at UK, which is named the Louis B. Nunn Audio History Center, which was something that we did when we were there in office to get it started uh, to preserve the history of the Commonwealth. And so uh, I did this audio history, and then from there, uh, I wanted it to be an academic-type book so it could be used for teaching, and that's how Eric Moyen got involved, who's a Ph.D., who's now at Mississippi State, and, but he's a native Kentuckian. And uh, so that's how it got done, but it took five years, and, 
And uh, it was laborious because uh, uh, Eric would write a chapter off of the audio history and I would rewrite it and then he would write it and we'd critique every word. I wanted every solitary single thing fact-checked. And uh, so I think that's why the book turned out as well as it did. Well, it's phenomenal. It's got to be required reading for every student that's wanting to be involved in the sports industry going forward because I know this, uh, there'll be a new normal. Uh, it will be new and it won't be normal. And, and your career was taking new things to new places, whether it was a NCAA radio network or an organization of independent uh, um, contractors that, that led tours around the country or a lot of other things. Uh, Charlotte and I have, have often said that when you hired us, if, if we had moved to the Commonwealth uh, instead uh-huh. of to Dallas, we would have never left. I, I think I love the state of Kentucky. I know you love the state of Kentucky, probably maybe more than anybody I know. Tell me what makes the Commonwealth of Kentucky so special. The people. Uh, in fact, when I was back, in, I'm still the only two-time cabinet secretary in the history of the state. Uh, that was in two different administrations, meaning I was the youngest in 1967 and I was the oldest in 2003. And in between, there were 36 years of uh, doing something else, which was my business. And uh, and when I came back into state government the second time, we looked at uh, the fact that every single cabinet had their own brand. And so uh, I brought all the brands. There were 51 different brands, logos and brands of state government in different agencies when I came in in 2003 as commissioner of commerce. And so I, we had a cabinet meeting one day, and I threw them all out on the table. And I said, everybody proud of these? And, of course, the ones that had them, well, they're all proud of them. I said, we need to have one logo of state government. And everybody needs to unify around this one thing. And the governor, I hadn't discussed it with a soul before this meeting. And the, and the governor looked at me and the governor looked at me and he said, Jim, uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. How you propose going about it? And I said, we'll come up with some alternatives, some ideas. We'll present them to all the cabinet and so on. And out of that, we, we went out and did testing of people and we asked people outside the state, what they thought about Kentucky. And they all talked about the beauty of Kentucky, the beauty of the three areas of Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky with the mountains, Central Kentucky with the bluegrass, and Western Kentucky with the Great Lakes. And so um, uh, so then we asked people inside the state what they thought about Kentucky, and they said, we just hate that people think we're hillbillies and so on and so forth, but there's one thing that binds us together, and it's our great spirit. That's where the brand Unbridled Spirit came from, and it's now the sixth most recognized brand in the country because each administration has kept it since then. And so it's the great spirit of the people of Kentucky, which have, uh, over a period of time, we've, one of our issues is that we, we have 4.4 million people in 120 counties. We're the second, third state in the country in a number of counties. We've got some counties that have five and six thousand people in them, and we should should have uh, merged these counties. Should have but not. No, we shouldn't have 120 counties. We ought to have 60 counties. Uh, but uh, those are all issues which Kentucky has. Uh, the the best thing about this state is its unbridled spirit. 
Well, that was a great campaign. You know, I'm a Georgia boy, and we have 169 counties in Georgia. That that, that they was created back in the day that you could leave your farm on your horse and yeah. ride it to the county seat and do your business and get back before uh, you know it got dark. Well, that's just obsolete today. To operate 169 counties is so well, in- inefficient. But I don't know if you'll ever get that genie back in that bottle. Kentucky has 120 counties. Georgia has 160 some odd, and the one that has more counties than any other state is Texas. So you've got Texas, Georgia, and Kentucky. Well, look at the size of Texas. Look at the size of Georgia, population-wise, and look at Kentucky, and you can start to see why it's so difficult to administer it as a state. Well, I want to switch gears and talk about something near and dear to my heart and yours, too. When you think about Kentucky, you clearly think about the horse racing industry, but you also think about U.K. basketball. And, um, you know, Coach Varnell was one of my mentors and was so good to me when I was a young coach. And he had he had coached under uh, Coach Rupp. And, and, you know, you were there through Coach Rupp and through – Joe Hall and uh, Eddie Sutton and Rick Patino and Tubby Smith and and um, you know now with John Calipari, what Kentucky basketball it, to me is second to none. Talk talk about, a little bit about that. Well, it's the one thing that uh, that every person in every county rallies around. Uh, I've got a great story that back in nineteen um, in the nineteen sixties when I was doing play by play for one of the five at that point, five networks. There were no exclusive rights. So we had a network called the Kentucky Central Network. And this was in uh, in, uh, uh, 19, in the, in the uh, late 50s and early 60s. And, uh, and uh, we were playing on the West Coast, playing Southern California one night, UCLA the second night. In fact, as we played UCLA the first year that John Wooden was coached there. And... Uh, and uh, I remember somebody saying that they were flying in a plane over eastern Kentucky and they couldn't understand why all the lights were on below. Uh, and it was because everybody was up listening to the ball game uh, because the radio networks were the things that tied Kentuckians together listening to Kentucky basketball uh, when one of the great announcers of all time, maybe the best of all time, college radio announcers, uh, Kaywood Ledford, uh, was doing the games. Claude Sullivan, who was another great announcer, was doing games for Standard Oil Network, and there were five of us that were play-by-play people. And uh, the the institution of the University of Kentucky rallies this state and every single county like nothing else you can imagine. And UK basketball, which Coach Rupp started and uh, obviously has continued under Joe Hall and now under John Calipari, has always maintained uh, the number one uh, position in terms of interest in people in every county. Well, we've, we've started back our space program in America, and I've, I've told everybody, if you want to colonize Mars, just put a Kentucky basketball game on Mars. Uh, <laughs> I, I've never seen people travel like the Big Blue Nation. I said well, it's, it's, it's they, unbelievable. They have, they have uh, they, they, and it's not just basketball. Uh, I've often said that they could ever, if they could ever get football going in Kentucky like basketball uh, and have a winning tradition, which they had when Coach Bryant was here in the 50s, uh, people don't understand that Kentucky was number one in football 
after beating an undefeated Oklahoma team in the Sugar Bowl, 1950. And, uh, uh, and Kentucky football, where would you ever have a program that would attract uh, uh, 60,000 people continually to a football stadium that has a losing record, uh, except in Kentucky? It's, it's, it, it is not just basketball, but it's all everything that touches University of Kentucky. Well, it's a special institution in a special town. I've told everybody, and I've flown all over the world, as you know, and if there's a better uh, landing than coming into the Lexington Airport when you see those beautiful horse farms um, and you're looking down on Keeneland, it's, you know, I've kidded people. I've I've told everybody that God plays golf at Augusta, but he bets on horses at Keeneland. I think that's true. I well, mean, think about think about landing over Calumet Farm. That's what you're doing. Yeah. And, uh, oh. and people look down. They people look down and see it. And Pat and I uh, were were driving to uh, Frankfurt the other day for uh, for Phyllis George's uh, funeral at the Capitol, and we were driving uh, down Versailles Road, and uh, and uh, and it's the most beautiful drive in America. Uh, there's not a solitary gum wrapper on the on the right-of-ways it's the all the areas are mowed terrifically and the horse farms are spectacular and uh we we thank god for the fact that we are able to live here well jim you've been you've been a friend and mentor to so many people i'm i'm fortunate to be one of them you know charlotte and i talk regularly about how happy we are to have both you and Pat in our lives. I, I can't thank you enough for being with us today. I'm determined to make sure that we promote changing the game because I think it will change others' lives. You, you have a life, in my opinion, that's worth emulating. You, you did it the right way every step of the way. You did it with class. You did it with dignity. You also did it with the old-fashioned <laughs> elbow grease, hard work, beat people up, outwork people, outthink people, but more than importantly, Jim, you've been you've been a statesman for our game. You've always put everybody else ahead of your own personal interest. It's rare. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for your friendship, and I, I want to thank you again for being with us today from the bridge. Well, I'm very indebted to you, Rick, for your friendship. Yours and Charter's friendships means a great deal to Pat and I. And people can order the book through jimhostbook.com. Uh, that's the way to order it. it. It'll get autographed to whoever you want it to. And it's not a moneymaker. It's, it's, uh, it'll, I'll never get the money back that I've spent on it. Uh, I didn't intend it for that. It's an academic book. It's a marketing book. It can be used to help teach uh, people uh, uh, simple, simple marketing techniques and simple things to be able to do things with the rest of their life. So I'm deeply indebted to you for the time you've given me to talk with you today. Well, thank you, pal. And uh, look forward to visiting with you and Pat soon once this uh, crazy coronavirus pandemic is behind us and we can get back to our, to our lives. So thanks again for being with us. All right. Love to Charlotte. Thank right. you. Bye-bye. See you, buddy. We'll close today with another segment of On the Road with Rick. We've talked a lot today with Jim Host about the Commonwealth of Kentucky. One of my favorite Kentucky dishes is hot brown. 
and you can still eat it where it was invented at the Brown Hotel in Louisville, Kentucky. The Brown Hotel opened in 1923 in downtown Louisville and has been an institution ever since. It's a classic Georgian Renaissance-style hotel and is one of my very favorites. It actually closed in 1971 but was renovated and reopened in 1985 and is today one of the best hotels in America. Here's where they created the famous hot brown dish. Hot brown was created by chef Fred Schmidt in 1926. It's like an English Welsh rarebit and was designed for a late night dinner. It's a hot open-faced sandwich made with smoked turkey breast and bacon on white bread covered in creamy Mornay sauce and then broiled until the sauce begins to brown. It's ridiculously delicious and uh, has a gazillion calories. Uh, You can get this dish at many places in Kentucky, but the original at the Brown Hotel is better than ever. So that's our show for today. My pal Jim Host made it extra special for me, and I hope for you too. We'll see you next week from the bridge.